Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's time for Friday Follies right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. From the stories of the past and the fiction writers of the future, the Mutual Audio Network presents Mutual Book Club. The Devil's Pinata, a buckshot thriller. The first book in a series of, well, one so far. Written and read by John Bell. We wanted to find someone else to read it, but uh, they all turned us down, actually. So, uh, anyway, bear with us. Chapter One. General Clambake stood alone, taking in the situation in the Situation Room, situated 300 feet below the Pentagon. He stood six foot two in his stocking feet, because he always had trouble finding shoes that fit. He was a man's man, in a mostly straight way. He stared at the situation on the Situation Screen, a 20 by 12 foot high-definition screen situated on the East Wall, linked to each and every satellite computer, and information access center the Pentagon has access to in any access situation. What he saw made his grim visage even grimmer as he puffed on his huge Cuban cigar. He was not happy. He hated cigars. Lieutenant Whiskey entered the room and gave the general a sharp salute, leaving a cut across his forehead. What's the situation? he asked. The general scowled. Not good, he replied. Let's put it this way. The other team is five points ahead, but we've got the ball. It's fourth down, 75 yards to the goal, and there's one second left on the clock for us to pull off a miracle. The lieutenant frowned. Actually, he was already frowning due to the cut on his forehead, which leaked blood down and tickled his eyes, and he hated to be tickled almost as much as the general hated cigars. What should we do about the threat that faces us from Babenstan? The general held up one hand, and the lieutenant knew to zip his lip. This was because the general had written, Zip your lip, on the palm of his hand. I'll tell you, the general growled, after I see how this game ends. On the screen, the Kosciuszko Sea Lions quarterback, Billy Bob Bob Billy, took the ball and faded back to pass. Every member of the opposing team, including the coach, six cheerleaders, and the water boy, descended on him, crushing him in a pile of humanity and pom-poms, just as the final gun went off. Shucks, grunted the general. The lieutenant was shocked at the general's language. Generally, the general used expletives that would melt the cuspidor in a Shanghai cat house. Sir, are you hoping they turn this book into a PG-rated movie? The general didn't take his eyes off the screen, which was very painful, but he didn't show it. I think it would be wise, he grumbled. That would increase the possible audience by a good 30% if we could sucker teenagers into the theater. Popcorn and candy sales would skyrocket. The lieutenant nodded his affirmation. Very wise, sir. 
keep this a date night movie book. Does that mean there will be some romance here later for the young women to enjoy? The general lowered his eyes, wincing in pain due to the fact that they remained stuck to the screen. I shouldn't have been standing so close, he considered. Yes, romance, but no nudity, dagnabbit. Sir, the lieutenant expostulated, getting back to the world-toppling threat in Babenstan, what should we do? The general turned and focused his eyes on the lieutenant. His contacts remained glued to the screen. Lieutenant, there's one thing I must ask you first. Yes, sir. Why are you out of uniform? What's with the bunny rabbit suit? We're having an infiltration drill, sir. And you can thwart infiltrators while wearing a bunny rabbit suit? No, sir. I'm not involved in the drill. I see, he said, although he really couldn't see until he pried his contacts off the screen. We need one man to infiltrate Baben's stand immediately. Should I get him a bunny rabbit suit, sir? I'm sure he'll have his own. This man is our top man. He's always prepared for any eventuality. He's saved the world and our country dozens of times, in that order, against the most vile and vicious enemies possible. He's faced death, he's faced taxes, and he's always come out on top in the former. We need that man right now. Go get him, the general barked. I'll fetch him immediately, the lieutenant said. Who is it? I have no idea. But there's bound to be somebody like that in the military. Go find him. Could it be me, sir? Not in that bunny rabbit suit. I have a darling froggy suit. Find the man who can save the world. Spare no expense. Search every database. Interrogate every contact. Starting with the one stuck to the screen? Yes! Do I have to tell you everything? Yes, sir. I know he's out there, mumbled the general. We'll find him no matter where he is. But I have a feeling that he's as close as the first sentence of the next paragraph. Her name was Gwendolyn Harrison. Her loves, long walks on the beach and short walks on flaming coals. Her pet peeve, people thinking her first name is a typographical error. There is only one N in Gwendolyn, no matter how many red squiggly lines your word processor places under it. Her current location? Looking up into the face of Buck Shot, world adventurer, and the very one whose name you were waiting for in this paragraph. Buck was thrusting harder and harder. His brow glistened with sweat as he closed his eyes, waiting for that moment that transcended all other moments in the average human's rather mundane and thrillless life. Faster and faster he thrust, all the muscles in his at-one-time rock-hard body tensing in a rhythm somewhere between Walk Like an Egyptian and The Immigrant Song, betwixt Gwendolyn's, sorry, Gwendolyn's legs. Finally, release! With a loud gaffloosh, the water in the toilet flowed down the drain. Lifting the plunger he'd been thrusting from the bowl, careful not to splash any foul water on Gwendolyn's legs, he gave her a wink with one of his emerald eyes. He had left his ruby eyes at home today. "'Can I please finish my business now?' pleaded the rather embarrassed beauty. "'Carry on,' quipped Buck, shaking his plunger dry. Your pipes are free-flowing. 
Buck stepped out of the stall and, being a gentleman, tossed Gwed the sports section and then closed the stall door behind him. It would be the last time he would ever see Gwedolyn Harrison, at least in this chapter. Maybe later, if we can think of a clever way to make her reappear when you least expect it. Buck washed his hands, then washed the plunger, thinking it may have been best to do that in reverse order. No matter. He was a manly man, and a few wimpy germs weren't going to drag him down any further than he had already been dragged due to several years of beer and Oreo binges. Buck stepped out of the women's room into the stairs of the half-dozen women in line waiting to get in. "'Sorry,' he quipped. "'Occupado!' He was proud that he had made two top-notch quips in just three paragraphs. He walked past the disappointed ladies, convincing himself that they were acting antsy because he was leaving them, and not because their bladders were bursting as a result of the bar's All the Beers You Can Drink in Two Minutes for a Dollar special. Too bad the ladies' room was a one-holder, Buck quipped to himself. If they had more toilets, more women could be served at once. It dawned on him that this latest quip was not at all funny or intelligent, so he was glad he kept it to himself. The bilious bar was filled with a hazy smoke as Buck ambled to the owner and head bartender, Bob Bilious. Took care of the toilet, Buck quipped. Enough with your quipping, Bob quipped right back at him. Can you do something about this smoky haze? I thought it was a hazy smoke, replied Buck, huffing and a-puffing and a-sniffing the air, which would be odd because this is a non-smoking and non-hazing establishment. Yeah, Bob muttered under his breath, as well as under the bar, as he stood two foot four in platform shoes. Those darn college kids had to ruin hazing for everybody. But the smoky haze is currently the result of the fact that the bar is on fire. Buck glanced around and realized that, indeed, the establishment was ablaze. Specifically, the jukebox was burning brightly, as it always was on Thursday nights. Bob tossed Buck a fire extinguisher and said, Thursday juke-burning nights are killing me. I don't know why I thought it would bring people in. Look on the bright side, Buck said, non-quippingly, as he fired the extinguisher over the jukebox, taking a moment to appreciate the fine irony of firing an extinguisher to put out a fire. You have the largest arsonist following around. At that moment... Two bulky men wearing dark suits entered the bar. Buck's instincts took over immediately, and he ordered a beer and a dozen Oreos. Bob motioned at the goons in dark suits and said, Say, Buck, look, nice suits, huh? Really darkish. Up to that point, Buck had not even noticed the two gorillas in the dark suits. Sensing danger, Buck immediately ordered another beer and a bag of Oreos to go. The two hulks in dark suits ambled up to the bar and stood on either side of Buck. Buck coolly dipped an Oreo into his beer and nibbled at the chocolate part, having already licked the white stuff off. Your name, Buck Shot? the suit on his left said. Why not ask yourself instead of letting your suit do the talking? The bruiser on Buck's right put his hand on Buck's arm. You're a wise guy. You know what we don't like? Long walks on the beach and short walks on flaming coals, Buck snipped. Who do you think we are, Gwendolyn Harrison? I'll tell you what we don't like. 
The lummox on his right interrupted. Let me tell him. Goon left. But what if what you don't like isn't the same thing that I don't like? Goon right. I'm pretty sure that our sources of irritation are reasonably simpatico. Goon left. Perhaps, but you'll note that I was the one who initiated the current topic of conversation, so I believe it behooves you to allow me to continue my line of questioning to the ultimate conclusion. Goon right. A valid point. Very well. I shall allow you to continue your line of questioning, but I reserve the right to question the individual at a future point. Goon left. Thank you. Now, where was I? Goon right. Informing Mr. Shot what it is that we don't like. Goon left. Yes, thank you. Um, where is Mr. Shot? Goon right. He's buggered off. Indeed, Buck had slipped away and was, at that moment, buckling the seat belt in his 1972 Glaxton Miranda sports car. The two thugs burst out of the bar just in time to see Buck disappear in a cloud of exhaust. They sprinted to a big black sedan, which was also in a dark suit, and started the engine. As they peered ahead to see where Buck could have gone, they noticed that Buck's car was still sitting where it originally was, the dissipating cloud of exhaust no longer hiding it. Darn it! Heck! Gee willikers! Buck expostulated, keeping the PG plan for the movie, possibly starring Hedge Hogg, the actor that was so good in the thriller Beach Blanket Benji and the Llama from Hades. Buck looked in his rearview mirror, only to discover that it wasn't there. He searched the floor and found the mirror halfway under the passenger seat amid some stale Oreos with no white stuff to speak of. He placed the mirror against the glass of his windshield, only to discover that the glass wasn't there. Piece of crap car, he muttered as he looked around for the windshield. He found it in the glove compartment, along with a catcher's mitt, and maneuvered it into the windshield frame. It didn't fit, so he removed the mitt and tried fitting the glass into the frame instead. Success! Once it the glass, was in place, he pushed the mirror against the glass where it stuck just long enough for him to see that the goons were no longer behind him. Actually, one was standing above him, looking down at him, being able to do so because the car's roof was missing. It was probably in the trunk, taking up room that the spare tire would take up, if only he had one. And the other was sitting in the passenger seat, which at this point had fallen out of the car and was on the sidewalk. You know what we don't like, the standing strong arm said. I see we're picking up where we left off, Buck stated, sipping his beer. We don't like guys who lick the white stuff out of their Oreos. The other strong arm and leg man, still sitting in the seat, said, What's wrong with that? Yeah, what's wrong with that, Buck agreed. It's just wrong, Mr. Standing said. How do you guys eat Oreos, Buck queried. The normal way, Mr. On His Feet answered. You unscrew them, then eat them like they're two cookies. Mr. Butt on the Seat exclaimed quite loudly, You work with a guy for years and you think you know him. The right way is to take it apart and lick out the white stuff, then you immediately eat the chocolate cookie part. Mr. Upright walked around to where Mr. Seated was seated and punched him in the face. Pervert! Mr. Now Flat on the Ground jumped up and gave Mr. I Just Punched You Ha Ha a fast fist to the gut. Mr. Oof doubled over, then plowed into Mr. Don't Plow Into Me's belly, making them tumble down into quite a Donnybrook. And since the spring thaw, 
this Donnybrook had a strong current, probably alternating. Moments later, the two combatants decided to end the fight the civilized way, as Mr. I'm Armed pulled a gun and shot Mr. Why Don't I Get to Carry a Gun in the leg. He, the shooter, not the shoot-e, turned and aimed his rather large and intimidating gun at the driver's seat in Buck's car. But Buck wasn't there. With a screech of tires, the black sedan in the dark suit roared past the two goons in dark suits. With a smiling and waving, Buck shot at the wheel. So long, suckers! As the sedan turned left and disappeared, the standing shooter reached into the pocket of his dark suit and pulled out a dark cell phone in a dark suit. As he dialed a number, he heard another screech of tires as the black sedan backed out of the dead-end street it had entered, cut a donut in the middle of the asphalt with sprinkles, and sped off down the street on the other side. The goon put the phone to his ear and listened to it ring. A clipped voice answered the phone with one word. Report. Hello, report, the goon said. We have a problem. We don't need a problem. We have two big problems. We rounded up Arturo and Leslie problem at a Weight Watchers meeting. We need Buckshot. Then we have a situation, report. Report. Buckshot has gotten... Before he could finish, the black sedan came screeching out of the other street, which was one way in the other direction, barely making it out in time to avoid having an 18-wheeler flatten him, the car, and the car's suit. The black sedan drove up next to the man holding the cell phone. His companion was on the ground, busy trying to stem the blood loss from the hole in his leg, stopped, and the window rolled down. How the hell do you get to the highway from here? Buck asked. The man with the phone and gun said, You go down to fourth and take a left. No! His fallen comrade cried out. Don't tell him that, you moron! You go to fifth! There's road work on fourth! The clipped voice on the phone suddenly chimed in. Are you guys crazy? Taking fifth at this time of day? Tell him to go up to Cedar, take a right, follow Cedar around past the Piggly Wiggly, and go straight till you go under the overpass. Buck wrote down the directions. Thanks, he said politely as he pulled away. The two goons watched him drive off, although admittedly the standing goon had a much better view than the goon on the ground with a hole in his leg. The wind blowing into the window stung my eyes, especially since I drove through that swarm of bees. The day was warmer than the beer sitting in the seat next to me. I had to figure out what my next move will be. I had to find out... Wait a minute. What the hell is going on? Why am I talking to myself? Wait, I'm not talking. I'm in print. When the hell did this book go from third person to first person? I don't want some omniscient reader hearing my every thought. What if I think about Betty Jo Bieloski and that time we filled a wading pool with lime jello and... Stop listening to me! Oh, cripes. I guess this whole section is going to be first person. I'd better watch what I say. Or think. Or whatever the hell it is that I do to get my first person observations into this book. If you ask me, this is lazy writing. Do you hear me? Lazy writing! Now, where was I? I was driving down the highway trying to figure out what to do next. I had this nice, big, dark car. Maybe I could go across country in it, or sell it, or the big suit it was in. 
Yeah, I just need to find a guy who's in need of an XXXXXXXXL dark suit. I can hear it now. Yeah, I'm an XXXXXXXXL and I need a suit. You got anything in beige? That would be my luck. Suddenly and without warning. Wait, is that redundant? I mean, if something happens suddenly, doesn't it just go without mentioning that it was without warning? I mean, nobody yelled, look out, something is about to suddenly happen. So let me start this paragraph over again. Suddenly, with no warning to speak of, a helicopter appeared over my car. Oh, great. Like, where else would it appear? In my pants? I'm really bollocksing this whole first-person thing up. Um, a helicopter appeared, and it looked like it was singling me out for special attention. With bullets. I don't mean bullets being shot at me, but bullets dropping out of the helicopter. Some loose, some in boxes. I considered stopping and picking some up. They're getting more expensive all the time these days. But I was afraid stopping suddenly would cause a major highway pileup, and I didn't want to ruin the suit. I did, however, take the next exit, 37B. According to the sign, exit 37B had a shell station, a Motel 6, and a subway. I cursed my luck. The crisp O'Chick stand was off 37A. I should have waited, but the helicopter was on my tail. Yes, the car suit had a nice frock coat with an extra long tail. What could those guys be thinking? What are you thinking, Charlie? exclaimed the pilot of the helicopter into his headphone mic. I wanted to get his attention, replied the man kneeling at the open door on the side of the helicopter, also on headphones. That is, he's not kneeling on the headphones, he's talking on the headphones. In case that was a problem to you slower readers... You're welcome. Why are you pelting him with our bullets? I didn't have anything else to throw. I need my shoes. And we need our bullets. When we're done here, you're going to have to go back and pick every one of those up. But it worked. He's taking the exit. Where? Right there. He's careening past the subway. Man, why didn't he go the other way? I'm jonesing for some fried chicken right now. Never mind that. Can you get him to pull over? Stand by. The helicopter banked hard. The pilot shouted into his microphone, Hold on, we're banking. Do you need to make a deposit or use the ATM while we're here? I'm good. After the pilot had deposited his paycheck, the helicopter roared after the black car with Buck shot at the wheel. The steering wheel. Just making sure you're on the same page. Didn't want to lose you this far into the book. I looked out the window. The helicopter was still after me. I gunned the engine, and it purred like Betsy O'Luton the time that I gave her that cassava massage the night we... Hey, 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 is this first person again? That does it. I refuse to continue if you're going to first person me. I'll just not say or think anything. Spirograph. Pixie Sticks always got gummed up before all the candy could come out. I bet Betty would leave Barney if I gave her a cassava massage. Oh, 
all right, you big baby. Buck drove the car like a madman through the small town with the helicopters shadowing him through every twist and turn. Buck drove under trees, hoping the leaves would not only make him invisible to the copter, but also provide a little shade, since the air conditioner wasn't working very well. No luck. He drove into a parking garage to avoid the helicopter, but they wanted him to pay two dollars to park, and he'd have none of that. Finally, Buck's keen eyes spotted the place that his keen mind told him would be a keen place to shake the helicopter, the local airport. He won't think of landing here, Buck mused to himself. Almost instantly, the helicopter touched down on the helipad. Buck started rethinking the wisdom of mouthing off to the narrator instead of just going with the first-person flow. But no... Okay, Bonehead, you wanted third person, you got third person. Buck opened the door to the car, stepped out, stumbled, and landed on the only warm and reasonably fresh cow flop in a 30-mile radius. He got up and slammed the car door on his fingers. As he shook his aching pinkies, his pants fell down, exposing his boxers with Mom's Super Guy printed all over them. Enough, Buck shouted. I'll do the damn first-person thing later. Right now, we've got no plot to speak of, and my knees are getting cold. The two men from the helicopter trotted up to Buck. We have something for you, the taller of the two said, although he was wearing very thick boots and could have easily been of equal or lesser height. I hope it's a plot, Buck muttered. I'll say it is, said the bootless helicopter man. We've been ordered to take you to General Clambake. Great. Buck replied. I'm starving. Will there be girls in bikinis there? Not a General Clambake. The General Clambake. There's a the General Clambake? How many generals do you suppose are named Clambake? Asked the helicopter man with the shorter attention span. How am I supposed to know? Returned Buck. I mean, we shouldn't call him the General Clambake until we're sure there aren't more General Clambakes, which would make this General Clambake a General Clambake instead of the General Clambake. This is giving me a headache, said the helicopter man with the stirrings of a headache. Just get in the chopper. So this is the chopper, not just a chop. Buck's retort was cut short by a well-placed boot to the back of his head, for which we are all grateful. Buck's eyes tried to focus. His nose tried to focus as well, but then, realizing it was unable to do so, gave up and allowed the eyes to carry on. Buck's ears could pick up a voice that sounded like it was a mile away, although it would have to be a really loud voice for it to be heard a mile away. The ears focused on the bellowing voice. Mr. Shot, can you hear me? Are you coming to? Coming to what? Dinner, attention, Jesus, Buck groaned. Open your eyes. Tell me what you see. I see, Buck strained his eyes. I see five little asterisks, about six lines up. That's just printed there to show the passage of time. It's a book thing. Anything else? I see a face. The face of, oh my God, Aunt Matilda. <laughs> That's right, sweetie. Just relax. Everything's going to be okay. The last time you told me that, I was tied to a pole carried by six pygmies. 
<laughs> That's my nephew! She turned to somebody out of Bucksfield Division. He's going to be fine. You can put him down now. The pygmies dropped Buck to the floor with a thud. They untied him from the pole and scurried out the door. Aunt Matilda politely waved to the unseen other people and said, I'll expect a check in the morning, and followed the pygmies, striking her forehead on the top of the special pygmy door. <laughs> Buck painfully turned his head and discovered several men in uniform standing near him. Buck rubbed his temples and said, You hire pygmies often enough that you actually had a special door installed for them? A soldier grabbed Buck by the elbow and helped him up. Stand up, sir. We're taking you to the general. And stop rubbing your temples. Where did you get them, anyway? From a six-inch tall rabbi, the pygmy drummer hit a rim shot, <laughs> then scurried out. Buck was led down a corridor with walls of gunmetal gray, then another corridor with walls of ash gray, then up some stairs painted dark cloud gray, then down a hallway that was Robert E. Lee gray. They stopped at a hot pink door. One of the soldiers knocked. A voice answered, Who is it? The soldier who knocked turned to the other soldier behind him and said, It's me, you idiot. Now be quiet so I can hear if there's somebody behind the door. He knocked again. From inside the closed room, a voice barked, Get away from the door. I'm coming out. The two soldiers and Buck had barely enough time to jump away before the segment of the door surrounding the doorknob splintered into flying shards with a roar of automatic weapons fire. The door burst open, and General Clambake leapt into the hallway, his Quigley Rochester 670 blasting away in all directions. Gray dust filled the hallway from the bullet hits, making it difficult to see anything except for the gray walls and gray dust, of which there was a lot. General Clambake then laughed heartily and exclaimed, <laughs> Somebody get my walker! I'm in extreme pain! The two soldiers retrieved the general's walker and helped him hobble back through the door that he leapt so heroically from moments ago. The general slowly sat in an overstuffed chair, grumbling, I'm getting too old for this sleeping around. The two soldiers looked at each other quizzically. How is that possible, sir? asked one. There are very few women within a hundred miles of here. The general looked even more quizzically at the two soldiers. Had there been a quizzical contest, he would have won. Who said anything about women? he asked. Uh, you did, sir. You said you were getting old for this sleeping around. You numbskulls! snapped the general. I said I'm too old for all this leaping around, not for all this sleeping around. I'm never too old to be sleeping around with women, especially when all they expect is sleeping. Oh, the two men said in unison. Then one explained, Pardon my misunderstanding, sir, but I didn't get enough sleep last night. I woke up too early. The general laughed. Aha! Spinning out of bed, eh? How's that, sir? You said you woke up twirly. You should not twirl in the morning, especially after all this sleeping around. The soldier stared uncomprehendingly, very much like you, the reader, is probably doing right now. Then the general shouted, Sergeant! The sergeant snapped to attention. Yes, sir. Nice snap, sergeant, grunted the general. That wasn't your spine, was it? Not this time, sir. Good, because I need someone who is not too old to leap about. To leap about! Very good, sir. 
The sergeant began with a few bourrées to warm up, switching to an artful demi-pointe, followed by some Pete Allegros exhibiting fine ballon, and then into a series of delightful brises back and forth across the room, his uniform sparkling in the spotlight. General Clambake nodded for Buck to sit down. Buck looked around and saw two chairs, one an ancient lazy boy, which was currently occupied by an ancient lazy boy, the general's cousin, and a Queen Anne chair which was currently unoccupied as the Queen had gone to visit the throne. Buck sat on that chair. General Clambake leaned forward. He almost toppled over. He leaned back. Too far, he started to slide feet first off the overstuffed chair. The soldier grabbed him under his shoulders and lifted him back into position. The general rubbed his chin for a moment. The soldier, not liking having his chin rubbed, slowly backed away. The general looked at Buck and frowned. He tried to rub his chin, but Buck wouldn't let him. "'Do you know why I called you here today?' posed the general. "'I have no idea,' retorted Buck, unimpressed by the general's pose. "'Damn, neither do I.' He turned his head and called out, "'Miss Schmackelheimer!' His secretary, Miss Schmackelheimer, a beautiful, tall, statuesque black woman with brown eyes, delicately curved ears, a moderate but delightful figure, standing five foot eight on her stiletto heels, enjoyed long walks on the beach, discussions of philosophy, and her two cats, Igor and Stanislaus. Originally from New Jersey, she grew up in Hoboken, where she learned martial arts and how to move small objects with her mind. She was single, having left a string of broken hearts in her travels that led, eventually, to the office of General Clambake, where she had worked diligently for the last six years. In her deep, sensuous voice, Miss Schmackelheimer cooed, Yes, General? Weren't you supposed to remind me what this meeting was all about? I did, sir, ten minutes ago. Well, it didn't stick. You're fired. Give me your notes on your way out. Miss Schmackelheimer handed him her notes, turned and departed, beginning a new phase of her life that would include many exciting adventures, none of which will be presented here. Perfectly good waste of half a page of character description, muttered Buck. Well, what are you going to do, mumbled the general, inspecting the notes. Ah, he exclaimed, here it is. I have a mission for you. About dang time, said Buck. And thus ends Chapter 1. Be sure to be here next week for what hopefully will be Chapter 2, if we're doing this all correctly. The Devil's Pinata is copyright 2020 by John Bell Creative, LLC. So watch it, Bob. Don't steal nothing. The Mutual Book Club. Available on any of the Mutual Audio Days, the Mutual Fiction Podcast feed, and the Mutual Audio Network feed. Thanks to the reader for today's performance, and please look for more classic tales and future writers next time at the Mutual Book Club. So, do you have children, or are you just a child at heart? In which case, Saturday Story Circle might be a good place to kickstart your weekend. Because we have the very best of family-friendly audio, which is all rated G for great. Join us on the main Mutual Audio Network feed, or you can find us 
at the Saturday Story Circle, wherever you get your podcasts. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.